Thank you, choir. Thank you, Dana. Thank you, Johnny. You know, I, I love, you know, Matt, Matt said it actually in our pre-service meeting. It's, it's awesome to be able to be in here and have a, an organ prelude, an acoustic set, uh, a choir piece. I love the breadth of the ways in which we worship here tonight. It's going to have a different feel to it, obviously, as well. And, and when you sit there and you listen to a, a song like that or you watch the worship team lead, it reminds me of one of the core values that Matt has, has really emphasized in, in uh, leading worship here at UBC, which is for those that come up here and stand on the stage, they really want to pursue excellence in their craft. And uh, they really give a lot of time and energy to it. And that's one of the things I don't ever want to be lost on us as a church is that folks that stand up here and lead us in song and in music afford countless hours of time and preparation so that you and I can worship. And so can we just applaud for all of them again? for their efforts in that. Really appreciate that sort of intentionality um, because they, they keep the right heart in mind. And that's one of the reasons why I want to invite you back tonight is because, you know, tonight is so much more than music. When we talk about worship, just for a moment as we get started here, you know, worship is obviously a lifestyle. It's Romans 12.1. It's this posture of sacrifice. It's this posture of service. But, but one of the gifts in which God has given us to, to, I guess, express our devotion to him is music. And, and so when we come together under the, the canopy of music and the opportunity to do that, what we really are inviting you to are these values that, that Matt has continued to emphasize in the worship ministry, right? That first and foremost, when we sing, we are passionately responding to the gospel, right? That, that's our response for us to, to come in here and not be overly um, attentive to particular song choices or instrumentation, but to, to be attentive to what Jesus has done for us. And the way in which we do that is the second value, right? To think rightly and feel deeply. One of the main things that we consider when we uh, think through what to sing in the course of a service or on a worship night is, is what the message of the song is, the lyrics that we're offering so that we can think rightly, right? So that, that ultimately what we feel is not, oh, I like this arrangement or I like this melody, but oh my goodness, I feel what Jesus has done for me. Because I'm reminded of this truth, right? And now, in order for us to do that in the, in the experience of music, we have to also acknowledge that none of us share, you know, a, an overwhelming majority of the same musical preferences, right? What, what, what this person likes is going to be different. What this person likes and this person likes and this person likes. And so for us to, to have worship have the impact that it needs to have, we need to be we leaders and not me leaders. We need to recognize that when we gather together for worship, it's not about us. And it's not about what we like. It's about our brothers and sisters and really about what God deserves and demands. And so what really needs to happen is we champion the church's voice and we realize that the church's voice is larger than my own. And so that's what we're inviting you to. And so I'd encourage all of you to come back tonight so that we can have this extended time to passionately respond to the gospel, to think rightly, feel deeply, to do it alongside brothers and sisters and to truly champion the church's voice. And so I'm grateful uh, for the many wonderful people that help lead us in that capacity. I'm excited about tonight, and I hope you all are able to join us. I'm, I'm excited every Sunday for the effort and the excellence that people lead us with when it comes to music and worship. Now, that being said, I also want to invite you next week to the start of a new series. Today is the last day that we, we are going to spend, at least for the foreseeable future, in the book of Genesis. That We could never take on the full book because it's a long one. And we would have been there for quite some time. We wanted to just look at these first few chapters. And so next week, we're going to have a kind of a new shift. And, and one of the reasons I really want you there is because, as I've mentioned to you before, this is the year that's going to mark our 90th anniversary as a church. 
And this is going to be something we celebrate beyond just one Sunday in June. In fact, there is going to be kind of a journey of preparation that we're going to commit to as a church as we lead up to that celebration in June. And then we're going to kind of refer back to it in the fall. This is going to be something we keep coming back to throughout the course of the year. And so I want to make sure that you're there because I'm going to be able to go into greater detail on some of those things that I want us to begin to prepare for as a church in celebration of our 90th anniversary next Sunday. Now, one of the things that we will see that will serve as somewhat of a, of a tie or a theme from this series to the next is this idea of promises, right? This, this idea that, that when we've looked at Genesis, we've looked at these promises that serve as a backdrop to the rest of the story, right? And, and what we've seen so far, hopefully, are these promises that, that take us into a tragedy, but in the midst of that, they compel us towards the gospel. They compel us towards Christ, and now what we see is that Jesus is the one that brings all these promises to the, their ultimate fulfillment. But what we'll begin to discover next week is that those promises don't stop with Christ. Now they find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ, but promises continue. We find the promise of the church. We find the promise of the Holy Spirit. So next week, we're going to start that journey into the book of Acts. And I cannot tell you how excited I am for that series. We're going we're gonna to hang out in the first part of Acts. We're not doing the whole book. But we're going to hang out in the first part of Acts for the next few months as we begin to continue to look at the promises of the Holy Spirit and the promises of the church. Now, that being said, before we continue today, let me offer just a quick recap of how some of those things have been spelled out so far in this series in Genesis. Well, we talked about how in the beginning we saw that there was this, this chaos, right? And one of the main promises that we, we looked at in the introduction of the series is that our God is a God who brings beauty out of chaos. And so before he even spoke, we saw that the earth was formless. It was void, right? There was, there was a darkness, chaos, so to speak. And then God said, let there be light. We saw sun, stars, and moon, sky, land, sea. We saw beauty. And the continuation of that beauty brought to us through these promises fill the earth multiply rule over it subdue it you are free to eat even god himself steps back at a moment looking at his creation saying something is not yet right there's a there's a problem in this work it's good but not good enough yet loneliness something that needs to be corrected so a second act of creation where we find man and woman now brought together in the promise of uh, togetherness, the promise that, that remedies this issue of loneliness and this beauty just continues to unfold. But then we see this rhythm that we'll see play out through the course of the rest of the scriptures, this alternation between beauty and chaos because you get to chapter three and tragedy emerges. We're brought into the problem of the deception that leads us astray, right? There's a distortion of God's character. There's a distortion of his word. Man and woman become fixated on the restraints rather than on the freedom. And so what do they do? They buy into the lie, the lie that you won't die. They give in to the temptation. You will be like God. And in that act, something so quick, something just two sentences was all it took to deceive. And the severity and the swiftness of the rebellion, she took, she ate, she gave, and everything changes. And so now their eyes are open to the, the, the nakedness of judgment, not in this peace with God, but in this, this shame before God. So God calls them out. Where are you? Who told you? Have you eaten? What is this that you have done? And in his questioning, we find this trial unfold. And in their defense, we see just how terrible it really is. Because what do they say? Well, it wasn't my fault. It was her fault. 
Well, it wasn't my fault. It was the serpent's fault. And then ultimately, even a, fa- a, a finger that points back to God, it was actually your fault for creating in such a way. And with that defense and the display of their sin prominently put for us to see, we see God's verdict, right? We see a curse, a curse on the serpent, this promise that there will be hostility, there will be harm, that now the roles of man and woman will be distorted. These promises will now be experienced not through peace, not through joy, but through pain, through suffering, through toil, through hardship. And now, with all of that said, we get to the sentencing, the banishment, the, the implications of how this will all unfold. And my hope this morning is that while we look at the one final piece of this tragedy, we're once again brought back to that promise we first discussed, that despite the chaos that has ensued, we will still see our God as a God who makes beauty out of chaos. And so for us to see that appropriately and clearly, let's pray for God's Spirit to awaken our hearts and awaken our souls to hearing what it is He needs us to hear. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do love you and we submit to you this morning a need to grow in our understanding of who you are and what it is that you have done. I pray, Father, that you would now lead us in this time and you would make your your word living and active in our hearts and our souls and our minds and help us to see the beauty that you bring out of chaos, not just from the scriptures, but in our own lives. We submit this time to you, to your praise and to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I'm going to also invite you back to junior high and high school English as I read famous lines from a poem. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life whose misadventured, piteous overthrows do with their death bury their parents' strife. Anybody that's familiar and went to junior high and high school English knows that I just read the lines from? Good job, y'all. You passed. You can go. Way to go. Good job. Um, Famous opening lines to Romeo and Juliet. And one of the reasons these lines are so powerful, it's so effective, is because a strong introduction tends to foreshadow where the story is going. Right? Did you notice the language, right? this discussion of two families that are described as foes, where civil hands make civil blood unclean, and the ultimate line, two star-crossed lovers who take their life. Right? You see that even in the beginning, this story is pointing us to tragedy, which is why when you get to the end and you see those final lines being written, they make this perfect symmetry almost, right? For there never was a story of such woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. And you see the symmetry of it. Now, I bring that to your attention this morning, not to embark upon the tragedy of this story, but the way in which it was written, right? That a good introduction, a good beginning tells you this is where we're going. This is the path forward. And that's part of what we need to look at this morning. As we finish this this kind of final bit of Genesis chapter 3, we do so looking at an an introduction, but asking ourselves the question, where is this leading? Where is this going to take us? And my hope is that as we ask that question and we look at some of the details within it, we will again see this promise we've referred to already, that our God is the God who brings beauty 
out of chaos. And so to do this, we're going to work through it incrementally, much like we did last week. We're going to read just a couple of verses at a time. It's a shorter passage today, but there's a lot to be discussed within it. So if you could pick back up with me now in chapter 3, verse 20. We finished reading the curse, and now we get the transition. Let's just look at verse 20 first. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Okay, let's, let's start there for just a moment. Okay, it's an interesting verse that in the middle of this curse and before the banishment, we have another naming of Eve, something that has already transpired in chapter 2. And so what, what's the reason behind it? What's the meaning that we should learn from verse 20? A couple of things to consider. First of all, we see a new name. All right, chapter 2, we didn't get the name Eve, but here in chapter 3, we get it, and it's defined within the verse to be the mother of all the living, which is a very interesting name to give right after a curse that says, from dust you are into dust you will return. So on the heels of God promising death, we have Adam naming Eve with a name that refers to the living. So, so what are we to make of that? Well, there's, there's a lot of different ways you could interpret it. I, one that I thought was pretty interesting was, was Bonhoeffer's take on it when I was reading his uh, study of Genesis where, where he makes the comment that this is actually just one more act of defiance from Adam towards God. At the, right after God says death is the consequence for the sin, he, he kind of thwarts back at it and says, no, actually, we're still living. We, we still have life apart from you. Now, I, I personally, I don't know that I can make that same conclusion that Bonhoeffer has made, but I thought it was somewhat interesting, at least thought-provoking. The, the way that I've typically interpreted 3.20 is that you still have this understanding of delayed death, right? That these promises of, of eating fruit and filling the earth and multiplying are now just distorted through pain and suffering. And so, so we still have what's about to unfold, which is filling the earth and multiplying. And in that sense, There will still be life in the sense that there will be new families, new children, but it will be in a new distorted reality, a new curse-driven world. That's that's how I take the meaning of Eve. But, But what I think is greater for us to consider in 3 verse 20 is the fact that Adam named Eve. Okay, this is clearly a a focal point of the author of Genesis. Part of what God is wanting us to see is the unique relationship between man and woman, husband and and wife. It consistently comes up. And so we don't need to just move past it. We've talked on it on several occasions. And so here's one more example. Now here's what you can learn from 3.20. Most scholars will look at Genesis, and when they look at through the act of naming, it tends to imply that when somebody names something else, there's a certain level of authority over those things. So most folks will read chapter 2, and when Adam names the animals, right, he's exhibiting the fact that God has entrusted dominion and authority over the animals, okay? So a lot of folks will take the same viewpoint in 320 and say this is a verse that demonstrates man or husband's authority over woman or wife, okay? And, and that seems to coincide with what we've seen in 316, right? Because in 316 in the curse, what does the curse say? Her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. This is a very interesting statement. So let me just be very clear for a moment. There are other passages beyond this that speak to this dynamic of the relationship between man and woman now that exhibits some sort of authority of man over woman or husband over wife. And just saying that, I know, makes many of you uncomfortable, right? It's a a very delicate issue and one that we have to work through. So, So let me explain to you how to address it, at least how I address it in 3.16 and 3.20. 
Okay, I can't be a faithful teacher of the text and pretend like it's not there. Okay? So, so here's what I would say, is that if you think in any capacity that there is a legitimate reason to take 316 and 320 as a justification for man to rule over woman or husband to rule over wife, I would say that is very sketchy and difficult theology. And I would love to question how you fully extract the elements of the curse. Because if we were to use 316 and 320 to justify man's rule over woman, then what we really need to do is use all the curse and not just part of it. And if you're going to take that position, then I would also expect you to be one of the greatest advocates against any sort of pain alleviation for childbirth. You need to be like the best advocate for home childbirth with no hospital, no drugs, nothing whatsoever. And you must be against every convenience that can ever come your way in your career. You must be against fast food. Don't you dare, because you're supposed to eat by the sweat of your brow and through the toilet land. You need to get rid of the tractor, get back to the farm and toil that dirt by your own hand. It's, it's inconsistent. You can't use 316 and 320 to justify that dynamic in a relationship. That's exalting the curse. That's why I keep going back to it. Now that said, there's a tension with the curse, isn't there? You can't undo it. Right? There's still pain in childbirth. Right? There, there is still toil for our own existence, for, for livelihood. So there's a tension between the relationship of man and woman. That's why we have arguments over patriarchy and feminism and complementarianism and all these things that create division in the church, right? It's part of the curse. So how do we live in that tension, knowing that it doesn't fully go away until Jesus comes back? We look to Jesus. We look to how Paul explains Jesus. I'll paraphrase for you one of my favorites, Ephesians 5. What does Paul say? Right? He speaks to wives, he speaks to women, and, and paraphrasing, what does he say? Don't fight. Don't, don't let this curse create seeds of resentment and tension and force you to leave into something that isn't good. And the reason you can do that, the reason you can choose humility in this moment and surrender in this moment is because guess what? Men, love your wife like Christ loves the church. Give yourself up for her. Both of you choose humility. And in that, you exalt the promise. It's difficult to do. And there's so much more to be said on the issue, which is why we created Theology Matters. Another space for us to, to dive into some of these difficult texts and to answer what do we believe and to invite a place where you can ask questions and we can look at a greater teaching of it. We don't have time for it this morning, but all I can say at this point is after some difficult verses in 316, 320, they are not justifiable verses for you to use in some sort of abusive role of man over woman. It exalts the curse. It, it reveals the tension of the, of the dynamic, the distortion of the relationship that God intended initially for good and for beauty and part of the promise. Okay? Now, that being said, let's continue. 321. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Okay? I'm stopping here because this is probably one of my favorite verses in the entire chapter of chapter 3. You've got the promise of, uh, of the descendant of the woman crushing the head of the serpent's heel, which I love, and this one's probably right next to it. This is a remarkable verse, okay? So, so what has just happened here? This is a verse that once again gives us insight to Yahweh Elohim, this covenantal God, this relational God, this, this intimate God. And what we have here is a glimpse of what he's going to do. He's going to provide for Adam and Eve. He's going to provide for man and woman. He's going to do something for them that they couldn't do for themselves. 
Now, what is it exactly that he does? Here's, here's what's not just been said. Uh, when you see garments of skin, it's not as if prior to this moment, Adam and Eve were just floating around in the garden as souls, and they were just spiritual beings. And now all of a sudden, they've been constrained in skin. Okay, that, that, that's not it. I believe they were already physical beings. They were made from dust with form with this particular degree of creation. And the reason I think you can say that even further with verse 21 is because skin here, that word also refers to animal skin. Right? It's, it's not just human skin. And in addition to that, you have the word garments. And garments are typically used, that word is typically used to refer to, to tunics or to clothing. Okay, so what you see is that God has made skins, he's made clothes from animal skins for Adam and Eve. Now, why is that significant? The reason that's significant is because clothing always tells a story, doesn't it? Right? I mean, you can look at how people dress and you can make certain inferences, where they're going, what they're about to do, where they're from, where they shop. It, clothing tells a story. So what do garments of skin tell? What story does this reveal? Think, think with me for a moment. What has to happen for animal skins to be created. Right, this is not, he, he, he took animal wool. He took animal skin. So what has to take place? Death. Blood has to be shed. It's the only way. And so here in verse 321, we don't have it explicitly explained for us, but I personally believe you can read verse 321 and see the beginnings, in fact, the, almost the entire foundation for the practice of sacrifice. Here you have man and woman who deserved immediate death and would get eventual death, but in that delay, God brings a substitute. He brings something else, and through the shedding of blood and through the act of sacrifice, he covers their shame. The one thing that they were constantly fearful of and mindful of, he covers it. Right? This is what leads to the whole concept, in my personal opinion, of sacrifice and, and blood. This is what leads to the whole sacrificial system we see play out in the rest of the Old Testament. It's why the author of Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This act of creating these animal skins creates forgiveness for man and woman. He does for them what they could not do for themselves. He covers their shame. He clothes them. I love the imagery of God clothing them. You see that repeatedly emerge in the scriptures, right? We see it with Paul's letter, I think, to Colossians, where he says, clothe yourself in kindness and humility. Or maybe the way the prophets say, let me read to you from Isaiah 61 and the promise that we have here and the way in which God clothes us. It says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation, and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. Our God, this Yahweh Elohim, covers our shame with salvation and with righteousness. And verse 321 gives us a glimpse of that mercy right next to his justice. And so let me ask you a question. When you, when you get dressed, when you get ready, what do you typically do, right? You, you stand in front of a mirror. And when you stand in front of a mirror, you evaluate the whole process, right? You're like, okay, is my hair right? Do I have this good thing in my teeth? Yeah, I need to shave. Don't have time. Okay, so you get ready. You see yourself. But I also would argue that as, as superficial as those moments are, we actually look beyond the external. We look within. What do you see? If you were just 
honest with yourself for a moment. How do you see yourself? Do you see the shame that Adam and Eve are experiencing? Do you see the arrogance? Do you see the rationalization? Do you see someone trying to hide? Do you see someone trying to give in to their own way, to their own desires? What do you see? What we need to be encouraged with today is not so much what we see, but what God sees. God wants to clothe us with his mercy, with salvation, with righteousness. We must not lose sight of that and how it brings us into the promise. And so verse 21 gives us a glimpse of the divine mercy, but as we continue, we still have to deal with divine justice. Let's pick back up in verse 22, and we'll read this through the end. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and his flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, this is a very interesting progression, and it's interesting on a couple of notes. First, what we see here is that the Lord God said he is like one of us. Interesting statement. Who is us, right? Um, It's more, I mean, it could be, I guess, in in some ways a reference to the Trinity. We've seen that before in Genesis, but but it might just be any heavenly creature that's not going to be banished from the garden. Right, could be a reference to this, this angel, this cherubim. Right, But what we know is there is now a distinction between those who get to stay and those who get to go. What I found fascinating about the opening part of verse 22 is he said, they are now, man is now like us. And in that statement, you know what we discover? There was truth to the temptation. The serpent, in some ways, was right. You will be like God. And here's God saying, he is like us. So how do we process that? Remember, the lie was you won't die. But now we see a, a semblance of truth that they were like God. Now, isn't that how temptation works? There's always an element of truth to, to it that makes it tempting. Right? The reason we feel compelled to give in to our lust, to give in to our cravings, to give in to our desires is because we know they're going to make us feel a certain way. What we often fail to really acknowledge and see is not the truth of the temptation, but the depths of the lie. The consequences of what happens when we actually engage in that act and the fallout that ensues. The lie that that they didn't see was that death was going to be the result. But the temptation had some truth to it. So when we face that same struggle in our own lives, we need to acknowledge, yeah, there might be some truth to this. There might be a momentary satisfaction but I can't lose sight of the consequences if I go my own way. It's a very interesting statement there. And so what happens? Right? They, they go their own way. And so with God having seen the severity of the sin, he banishes them. Right? He says, I'm going to cast you out before you can reach for the tree. Because the penalty of the sin is death. Right? From dust you are to dust you will return. So you cannot eat from the tree of life. You, you must be kept away from that in order for my word to stay true, in order for you to, to receive the penalty that you deserve. And so now there's this, this banishment that takes place, and there's this, there's this struggle that exists almost between God and mankind because there's this word play that seems to reveal itself here because the same root is used for reach out and banish. 
right? So you almost can picture this, this struggle through the literary terms that are used that, that mankind is going to strive for that eterni- eternity. They're going to strive for life, but God, as a consequence, is going to say, no, you're going to actually be pushed out. And because the banishment is what it occurs, it reinforces that God is the one that's truly sovereign. We can't overcome his sovereignty. We can't overcome his edict and his word. And so the banishment ensues. Separation. A chasm. Now this is really interesting for us to consider for a moment because it it carries some very significant implications. It doesn't just reveal divine justice. It reveals the holiness of God. Right? That God cannot be in the presence of sin. It tells us more about his character and his nature. And here's, here's where we struggle. Where we struggle is that we don't really want to see the consequences for sin. Right? We don't really want to see the impact of it. And we see this, this story unfold, and we think, gosh, all they really did was eat some fruit. Why, why couldn't God just move beyond it and forgive them? Why such a harsh penalty? It seems arbitrary. It seems unfair in some respects. And so we struggle with the severity of God's discipline. Now listen, when we do that, two things occur. It mischaracterizes God's character and it mischaracterizes the severity of our sin. Right? The first is this. We have to understand God is holy. He cannot in any capacity be in the presence of sin. There is no uh, level that is, that is tolerable enough for him. Let me, let me give you an illustration for this. Okay? I, I actually am borrowing this illustration from a friend of mine, Gary Stidham. He's the BSM director at uh, UTA. And he uses a slightly different variation of the story, but I've used it before at VBS and explained it to our, to our kids in here. And so children, listen real quick. This is a good way to understand God's view of sin. Um, I, I just got back from China, as many of you know, and one of the great blessings from that is that many of you have worked very hard to provide meals for us, which has been awesome. And we've taken many a casserole home and enjoyed that hard work and preparation. We thank you for that. You know, anytime you eat food from someone else, there's an inherent trust that it was prepared okay right? That, that food wasn't expired, that hands were washed, and all those different things, right? So imagine if the roles were reversed, and you were in a situation where people were providing you meals, and, and my family had decided to do that for you, and I come up, and I find you in the hall, and I've got this beautiful tray of brownies, and I'm like, hey, we, we've got brownies for you, and you're going to love them. They're amazing, family recipe, homemade. There's only one thing. I need you to know that when we were making these brownies, my son was in the kitchen, and he threw up, and some of it may have gotten in the batter. How many of you are going to go home and eat those brownies? If you say yes, you're lying, right? Ain't nobody going to eat that. Even if I said, now listen, he threw up on the counter. It wasn't, it wasn't there. I think maybe just a, just a tiny bit may have splattered into the batter. Just, just a little. I think you'll be fine. How many are you going to eat the brownies? No one. It's not about volume. It's not, it's not about how much. You're not going to touch it. That's how God is with sin. He's not going to be in its presence to, to diminish... The severity of the punishment here to say, well, this banishment isn't necessary, diminishes the holiness of God. He cannot be in its presence. It also diminishes the severity of the sin, right? When we want to just skirt past it and be like, well, gosh, this really isn't that big of a deal. Like, we can look back on this story of eating a tree from, or eating fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and it kind of feels like when you're raising kids and they say, can I have a cookie? And you say no, and then they go over and they eat a cookie, not really something you want to see out of your children. There's going to be a consequence, but are you going to banish them from your presence for the rest of your life? Probably not. And so it's easy to simplify the act and feel like the, the punishment was way too severe. That minimizes the problem of sin. What really took place here was not just breaking some arbitrary rule. 
It was a distortion of God's character. It was a perversion of his word. It was an overwhelming desire to seize from him the power that rightfully belongs to him, to turn our back, to go our own way, and then blame him for our own mistakes. It was an egregious sin. And that's the heart of all sin. No matter how we think of it in the moment, it ultimately happens because we've distorted God's character, we've twisted his word, and we've tried to seize something for ourselves. God can't tolerate that. And so what's happened here with the banishment is a really interesting development that is so applicable for you and me today. And I love the way that Walter Brueggemann puts it in his his interpretation of Genesis. Here's how he describes it. What we're discovering here in these verses is that there's a stark contrast between life that is like God and life that is with God. In our pursuit to be like him, it severed the opportunity to be with him. And that is one of the greatest struggles that we still feel. That on some level, our impulses, our desires say we need freedom. We need power. We need what we think is our own. And as we pursue those things, the consequence is alienation from others and from God. We can't have both. But if we choose to die to self, If we choose surrender, if we welcome restraint in the midst of freedom, we find that true happiness is not what we can gather for ourselves, but in surrendering ourselves so that we can be with our creator. That's what we need to pursue. Life with God, not life like God. And so this banishment is the consequence of that sort of endeavor. And so the the banishment is symbolized with the imagery of the garden. Right now, this garden has already been described in greater detail in earlier chapters, and what we have now is that the, the way in which this is articulated is that there is a removal from Eden, and there is a cherubim that is now guarding the way back to the tree of life through a flaming sword. Really cool picture, if you think about it. It's really haunting, though, too. And so with Eden, we have some powerful symbolism. In fact, when it's first described with all of its vivid detail of of rivers and trees and fruits, it gives us this picture of paradise. It gives us this picture of this this amazing scene where there is peace and harmony with God. And all of that has been lost. All of it has been tarnished. It's been this this removal, this separation. And so when you see this, this tale begin to unfold through the rest of Genesis, remember, this serves as a backdrop to so much of what we read in the pages that follow in the scriptures. This is why when you see the Israelites begin to talk about a tabernacle and talk about a temple, some of the imagery is harkening back to Eden. It's a desire. Let's, let's get back to this relationship. Let's get back to this peace. Let's get back to the presence of God. Let's be with God and not apart from God. And so you see symbols like cherubim. Right, that are not just here guarding the way back to the tree of life, but they're used as images in the tabernacle, in the temple, on the seat of atonement. Right? This is the imagery that what has been lost is this paradise of Eden. That's the consequence, this separation. And so much of our struggle, I, I realize it's this, this imagery and this story, but here's where we connect it to our own lives. Our struggle in life, part of the consequence of the fall and the sinful impulses is that our lives turn into this unending pursuit to get back to life. This tree of life, this this place where we find purpose, where we find peace, where we find harmony. It's this never-ending thirst that, that plagues us in humanity. And we long for it and desire it. And the more we seek it out, it's almost as if the more we realize we're entangled in sin and death. And so this becomes the human condition. 
I was reading through Brueggemann's interpretation on this, and he made an interesting connection to anxiety. And that caught my attention, because if you're like me and you've read any articles over the last few years, you've probably come across a few that have identified that anxiety is a growing issue in our country, especially for youth and college students. And and anxiety carries this close connection to depression, uh, which carries a close connection to suicidal tendencies and attempts. Right? I think even just this past week, Pew Research released this study that 70% of teens would identify anxiety as one of the number one issues they face. More than bullying, more than drinking, more than teen pregnancy, anxiety is the issue. And so when Brueggemann made this connection, it was really interesting to me. What, what connection is he making here in Genesis to this, this epidemic almost that we see in our country today that we know is not just limited to youth, but is, is something we all carry? And here was his point. I'm going to paraphrase this part of his work. But essentially his point was this, that anxiety begins with a doubting of God, right? That we, we question on some level that God can actually provide for our well-being, that he can secure for us what we need. And so these doubts creep in, however they may want to emerge. Maybe it's, it's too restrictive. Maybe his character is off at the same deceptions in the garden. Maybe he's, he's distant. He's uncaring. This is my, my parents' religion. This is something that I've never really thought for myself. But we question something, and we begin to doubt God's ability to care for us. And so what that does is it places that responsibility back in our own hands. So I'm going to go secure my own self-worth. I'm going to go have my own well-being. And, and, and society is going to tell me that I can do it. Right? That if I just go and pursue whatever it is that I need to f- pursue, that money will get it for me, that sex will get it for me, that drugs will get it for me, that, that fame will get it for me, all these things will give me what I so desperately need, meaning, purpose, life. And with every attempt, it fails. And it reminds us of just how far we've fallen. With every attempt, it fails. And all of a sudden, shame. We're reminded of the same shame that we're experienced by Adam and Eve because of these mistakes, because of these things that have left us to come up empty. And the more shame we feel, the more anxious we feel. And now we're in this trap. Because now I have more anxiety, but I don't have any faith to secure it. I just have more need to try to rid it for myself, but I don't know how, and so I'm going to avoid it. I'm not going to go back to school. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I don't know what to do. And so now I'm going to try something else that doesn't work. More shame. And more shame more anxiety. And next thing you know, you fall in this trap. And all of us, at some point in our lives, whether we're young, whether we're adults, we go through these seasons where we end up having a life that looks just like Adam and Eve's. We run. We just keep running from him. We just continue to buy in the delusion that if I just run hard enough or find the right thing, that this will give me purpose and meaning. Or maybe we hide We know that we're wrong, we know that we've fallen, we know we've made this mistake, but we're so ashamed of it, we just want to hide. Hide from others, hide from our parents, hide from our children, hide from our pastor, hide from whoever it is, hide from God most of all. And our lives are really best described by fear. Fear of what others might think, fear of what others might find out, fear of what happens if I fail, fear of whatever it is, fill in the blank. We're just like them, and all of a sudden, chaos. And this is our reality. And before long, you and I wake up and it is not hard to see that we live in a broken world. We see the, the depths of this chaos in our neighbors and our classmates down the street in our own church. And what really terrifies us is we know it's not just things we're seeing in the lives of others, we see it within our own souls. Broken. We're 
fearful. We're alone. We need something to help us, to save us. The beauty that we long for, the hope that we see, the the amazing elements that draws us into this Yahweh Elohim is that we discover we have a creator, we have a God that sees us in our worst state and refuses to leave us there. To the point that he steps into that shame, he steps into that brokenness for ourselves, on our behalf. And he takes that curse and he takes it off of our shoulders and he puts it on his own. And through death, through sacrifice, through blood, our shame is not just covered, it's removed. (laughs) Everything changes. All of a sudden, with this Jesus, with this gospel, we are giving the promise of beauty out of chaos. And so what do we do? We cling to this promise, and you and I discover the beautiful symmetry of how this story begins and how it ends. Because this Jesus, when we find him, what does he say? Three powerful, life-changing words. Come, follow me. Die to yourself. Let me save you. And when we follow him, you know what we discover? We discover where he's leading us. And he's leading us to a place. And along the way, you know what he's doing? He's clothing us. He's clothing us with garments of salvation, with robes of his righteousness. And he says, I'm leading you to a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. I'm leading you back to a dwelling, to a peace with God himself. And that's our hope. We are on this journey to a new city. We're not trying to return to the garden. We're actually living into a vibrant, living, majestic hope. Listen to the words of Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, and on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are the healing of the nations. No longer, church, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun and the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. This is where he leads us. This is where the story unfolds. This is the promise that has been offered to you and to me. This is more than just you die and your soul goes to heaven. This is where you get to be redeemed and rescued out of brokenness and shame and get to dwell with your creator forever. You get to rule and reign and serve and worship without it. And so this is the hope. We can see beauty out of chaos. And so we cling to that promise. And that's the response for us today. We cling to this hope. And so how do we do it? We do what the faithful saints have been doing for thousands of years. We come alongside one another and we confess our need for saving. 
Right? We confess our need for salvation. We confess our brokenness. And we gather around a table and we think about sacrifice. And we think about the blood that removes our shame. And we fix our eyes on the cross. A cross that for many stands as a symbol of death, a symbol of tragedy. But for us, it's a tree of life. For us, it reminds us that the ultimate promise is in Christ Jesus our Lord. One that reminds us now and forever, our God brings beauty out of chaos. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess our need and we celebrate your grace. God, words cannot express the, the measure of the mercy that you have extended to us, God. And so many times we, we minimize it, we cheapen it, we, we turn the wrong way. And I pray that you would redeem us from that, you'd rescue us from that. Father, for those of us that are running, I pray that we would stop. For those of us that are hiding, Father, I pray that we would come before you. Father, for those of us that carry fear, I pray that we could surrender it and see not just justice, but an overwhelming, all-consuming love, and that we would surrender to it this morning. And we would do so with passion, we would do so with commitment, we would do so with intentionality. We thank you for who you are and what you have done. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen.